We'll continue in our study of the book of Revelation, one of the most important books of the entire Bible. I hope you've already had a feel for why it is that important. And hopefully by the end of our session number two here, hopefully you'll have a better appreciation. In this session, I want to focus primarily on the background, although we already got into most of the background. Included in the background are some of the characteristics of the book, so that's what we will look at in this session. We actually started looking at the first characteristic is the genre, and I I mentioned that uh, some commentators emphasize these elements that relate to uh, epistolary literature, not necessarily classifying the book as another letter, but seeing kind of similarities in the introduction and the conclusion. Uh, I think generally the book overall is prophetic. It's a prophecy. And once we get into the book, we'll see that the bulk of the book is in fact futuristic or prophetic. And we have a series of several visions that John sees. And these visions are pictures of things that had not taken place any time in history, and I would say certainly not in the first century, visions that uh, John is given in order that uh, we may have the content of the book of Revelation. Now, a lot of people classify the book of Revelation as apocalyptic. That's a particular and a special category under prophetic material. Uh, This is debated. It does seem to show some elements of apocalyptic literature, which is a type of literature that seems to have been somewhat common before the time of Christ and after, shortly after the time of Christ, where people would write in this kind of a genre or this kind of style, this kind of literary form. It was certainly prophetic, but it was a specific type of prophetic material. Now, most of those outside the Bible, now there's even some commentators that believe that uh, the Bible doesn't utilize it, that it's a pagan form. So keep that in mind. Uh, So it may not apply to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation does have some of the characteristics, though, not all of them, of apocalyptic literature. Some of them, uh, for example, include, well, some examples. There's there's Jewish apocalyptic. First and second Enoch are classified as apocalyptic. Second Barak, fourth Ezra, and some others. After the New Testament, there was a book written by supposedly A. Peter, And one of the features of apocalyptic is oftentimes they will utilize a name of somebody that everyone would respect, an an authority, if you will. 
and try to convey the idea that this book was written by that person. So there's an apocalypse of Peter that's out there as literature. But uh, the dating of it would be after Peter's martyrdom in the 60s, early 60s. There's also an apocalypse of Paul that it would be apocalyptic, but obviously that would not be a Paul as well. Scholars that see this literary form in Scripture would classify portions of Isaiah as apocalyptic. Isaiah, and particularly Ezekiel. Ezekiel, more than any, would be considered by these scholars as apocalyptic. Joel, Zechariah, Daniel, particularly 7 through 12, would be considered apocalyptic. Well, what are some of the characteristics of apocalyptic? It has a title, uh, usually, that has the word apocalypsis in it, the Greek word. And it usually has the apocalypse of somebody, like that of Peter, that of Paul. And the book of Revelation shares that characteristic. This is the apocalypsic, uh, uh, apocalypse, if you will, of Jesus Christ. So the title... Uh, on many of these has that word in it. And we'll look at that word when we get to verse 1, which is an unveiling is the meaning of the word. The heavy use of visions is another characteristic of apocalyptic. And the book of Revelation shares that. And I'm going to talk some more about that because this is very, very prominent. We'll, we'll see almost all the book is in the form of a vision or series of visions. We also have angelic, an angelic guide in apocalyptic literature, an angelic figure that interprets these visions. And in some cases you have that, for example, you do have that in Daniel and you have that in the book of Revelation. So it shares that characteristic. Now, I wouldn't classify it as strictly apocalyptic. I think the, the main classification would be prophetic. So, just keep in mind there's a debate over that, over the classification. Uh, lots of exhortations to endure, and we certainly have that in the book of Revelation. High use of metaphorical language, uh, metaphors, non-literal language, symbols. We'll talk about interpreting that in a moment, interpreting the book. So that's apocalyptic literature. And whether or not the book of Revelation should be classified, I'll leave it up to you to, to decide if it fits the category. And be aware that not all scholars believe that that's a, even an appropriate category for Scripture. But certainly, uh, most would agree that it's prophetic as opposed to historical narrative, as opposed to poetic, as opposed to parabolic, as opposed to epistolary. Those are your major literary form of the Bible. There's some others as well. There's legal material. There's other forms. So that's one characteristic we can look at. Another characteristic is the book is highly metaphorical for, for 
uh, for sure. Now, I, I, I already introduced the idea of literal interpretation. And when we speak in our circles, in conservative circles, when we speak of literal interpretation, we are referring to what is more technically called the grammatical historical contextual method. The grammatical historical contextual method does not deny the existence of metaphorical language. The difference between a literal approach and a non-literal approach is in the literal approach, the key is discerning what the original author intended. In this case, John, or if you're in the writings of Moses, what did Moses intend? Uh, Also recognizing that Scripture is authoritative because of inspiration, what was the intent of the divine author? You know, we recognize that there's an author behind the human author. <clears throat> so the literal method always attempts to figure out what did the Holy Spirit intend. And if the Holy Spirit intended to use or did in fact use a simile or even a symbol, then uh, it's appropriate to utilize all of the uh, features of simile or metaphor or whatever the metaphorical device that is being used. So that's the literal method. The non-literal method tends to superimpose a meaning upon a te- <coughs> text that the original author did not necessarily intend. In other words, this is what I'm trying to understand here without consideration to what, uh, in this case, John wrote. That's a non-literal approach. Uh, They would recognize, and in fact, as they see symbolic language, their tendency is to try to come up with the meaning, but not necessarily in relationship to the original author. So that's the distinction we want to make. What did the author intend? Not what do I want the text to say, or not what is the, the denomination that I go to say, but what did the original author intend? And there's clues. Let me let me let me kind of give you a, an example from the book of Revelation. We won't get to this passage in this uh, part of the course. Uh, this, in the second part, we'll get into chapter eight. But notice in chapter eight, you might turn to chapter eight. I want to give you an example of the difference here. The literal method will begin by looking at every passage literally unless there are clues in the text that the author gives you that he's departing from a strictly literal interpretation. And I'd like to look at uh, chapter 8, verse 10, and let's read that. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the waters and on the springs of waters. Now, there is one simile in there, burning like a torch. 
But apart from that, do you, do you see anything else in that passage that indicates that uh, this star is anything other than a literal star? If you were to exegete the passage, what conclusion would you come to in terms of whether this is a literal star or some something non-literal? Any clues in the text there? Anyone notice anything? I don't. <laughs> so I, I would interpret verse 8 is, or, or verse 10 rather, uh, and keep in mind uh, the Greek word there for star that's translated star. In the Greek language, there's not a distinction between a star and a planet or a star and an asteroid. The same word is used. Same Greek word. There's only one Greek word. So what I would uh, conclude here in verse 10, a literal body out of the sky falls to the earth and does some damage here. Now, it's burning like a torch. So you have a simile. It's not a torch. It's it's burning like a torch. In other words, if you look at it uh, visually, it looks like a torch. So that's an image. That's that's non-literal. But he tells you with a little word like that he's using a simile here. But in terms of the star, it appears to be a physical body that hits and strikes the earth. And it talks about destroying a third of the rivers. So I would interpret that as a third of the rivers on the planet are destroyed as a result of this judgment. Does that make sense? Uh, Now, this is important because here is where a lot of commentators depart because this is unbelievable how something of this magnitude could take place. We're, We're talking about a whole continent destroyed all at once. In other words, that's the scope of what's happening and possibly more than a whole continent destroyed in one judgment, in one astrophysical event. So commentators think, well, you know, that's inconceivable. So they depart from that and make this something other than a literal star. All right. Well, I don't see anything in the context that leads me away from that. So I conclude that no matter how massive it is, this this is going to take place in the future. Now, skip to chapter nine. And, and notice, uh, let's read uh, verse 1 in chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven. And if you, if you compare that with what we saw in chapter 8, it's virtually identical, okay? I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth... And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Do you see anything there that might indicate that he's talking about a different kind of star here? The word in the Greek is the same word. There's no different word here. Very good. Very good observation. Everybody catch that at the very end? It doesn't say it. And it's very definitely a a prone... Personal pronoun. A fifth, that, that's your first clue. So immediately, John is telling me it's auto, auto rather, uh, the Greek word there, the personal pronoun. Fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star, 
uh, it's not till you get to the very end that you begin to see, okay, John's giving me this. Why did he put this word in there? Maybe he's hinting at something else. Now, we won't read on, but if you read on in the context from verse 2 to verse 11, it's describing a personage. Now, if you do a word study on that same word, star, you're going to find out that that word is used in a literal sense in some context. And in some context, it is used of personages outside of this passage. So right here, we have that little clue that Lindsay was able to observe. And if you keep reading on, you see a, a few more clues that are telling you that this star is an image of a personage. It's not talking about a literal star here. But the point I'm making here, John gives me all the little clues that I need to be able to take that star other than a literal star. You see that? That's the point we're making. So the literal approach, I don't see anything in verse 10 or 11 that makes that star anything different than something astrophysical. So I interpret it in that way. But when I come to something very, very similar in a very close proximity of the context and I find another, the same identical word, but now John is giving me some clues that he's saying something different in this place. So here you have a different judgment that's taking place uh, that is, has some non-literal elements to it. Uh, so that's the distinction. So, when we're talking about interpreting the book of Revelation, you need to recognize that there is lots of metaphorical language, but let the author, let John, clue you in as to when, when he's doing that. And if you do that, you will consistently be able to work your way through the book, and it'll make a lot of sense. It won't be a puzzle like some have observed. Uh, so, what are some of these metaphorical elements? Uh, sometimes it's just uh, a simile, very simple, and we use similes in our culture, in our literature, so we understand what they, what they do, how they work. We use metaphors, and we understand them when we communicate with one another today. The Bible does the same, the book of Revelation does the same. So you have a lot of metaphorical language. Uh, let's talk a little bit about... How do we interpret this language? In a moment, we'll talk some more about that. Uh, there's lots of visions in the book, which in itself, John is visualizing things that are very difficult to describe. Visions in themselves are pictures or images that the recipient is receiving that oftentimes has elements in it that are just unbelievably different from the, the everyday, the, the everyday experience that John was experiencing. Uh, notice again in the book, uh, let's turn to... Chapter one and notice even in chapter one, and, and this is typical as you work your way through the book. Uh, verse two, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he what saw. So 
right off the bat, in fact, verse 1, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. There's this visual aspect of the book of Revelation that is real common. Let me impress you with that. Uh, right off, it starts. In fact, edo uh, is a Greek word there for I saw. That occurs, uh, I can't remember the number of times. I think it's, yeah, 56 times the word I saw, the Greek word. And there's different Greek words that are used. Uh, look at verse 11. Write in a book what you see. And then verse 12, and turning to see, this is a different Greek word, the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and now he has this first vision. Look at verse 17, and this is just in chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet. That's a deo. Uh, verse 19, write, therefore, the things which you have seen. Very, very visual. And what John sees in verses 12 through 16 is this unbelievable picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, on the outline, I describe it as the indescribable. In other words, he, he can't describe it in, in ways that you can even conceive. We'll, we'll see that when we look at chapter 1. Uh, turn to chapter 4, where the future portion of the book begins. After these things, I looked. And then he tells us what he sees. Behold, a door standing open in heaven. Last part of the verse, and I will show you what must take place after these things. See the visual aspect, the visionary aspect here? Chapter 5, verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him, verse 2, I saw a strong angel, verse 3, the end there, to look into, the end of verse 4, to look into again, verse 6, I saw, verse 11, I looked, chapter 6, verse 1, I saw, and if you just keep reading, this is consistent throughout the book. John is recording for us what he sees. And what he sees, in some cases, is very difficult to describe. And he does the best that he can to describe it. And he uses metaphorical language to do it. And usually similes or metaphors. uh, Sometimes symbols. So we have this aspect. Uh, There are at least, I've got a record of at least 15... Uh, extended visions in the book of Revelation. If you just kind of add them up, there's at least 15, and you might include even more than that because there's notes that speak of things that are not as significant, but I've got a whole list of them here. Um, You also, in these visions, you need to keep track. Uh, we'll, We'll do this as we go through the book. Uh, you, you need to keep track of what he's seeing, where he's seeing it. I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 4, uh, verse 1, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. This is a heavenly vision. 
All of chapter 4 and chapter 5, heavenly vision. In fact, it'll alternate. He'll see things that are going to take place on earth. And then it'll shift and he'll see things that are taking place in heaven. And most of what he sees in heaven, uh, there just aren't words to describe. So we have lots of those. Uh, in fact, beginning chapter 4, uh, every passage is a vision, basically. So we have lots of visions, either on earth or in heaven. Things that God is doing on earth or things that God is doing in heaven. Besides visions, we do have symbols. can't get this thing to work right. Uh, there are symbols. Chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. If you read, for example, in uh, verse 12, John begins to record this first vision. He says, I turned to see the voice that was uh, speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, at this point, if you are just working sentence by sentence, uh, you might take that literally, that he sees these golden lampstands. But by the time you get to verse 20, we find out that uh, this lampstand is symbolic of something else. He also sees stars. So verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which I saw, there's the word again, in, in my right or which you saw, this is the words of Christ, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you have two symbols there. So right there, you don't have to go searching for the meaning of those two symbols. They're interpreted for us. John tells us those golden lampstands are a symbol that he is using to present an image of the seven churches. So what you do with a symbol, you, you uh, interpret it according to what the author intended. Let me illustrate this. And those of you that had the, the hermeneutics class will remember this, this slide. Oops. I'm going to give you a, a set of symbols. I already flashed the first one. <laughs> Pardon me? Very good, Einstein. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say before I flashed it on there, uh, I was not going to tell you what the symbol was. I was going to let you interpret it. And you have enough information just from the symbols to know what it means. Okay? E equals MC square is what? <laughs> Very good. E equals... <laughs> equal... E is a symbol that stands for energy... In fact, this is the uh, formula for converting energy in, or mass into energy. 
for a certain amount of mass, any amount of mass, that's m, if you multiply that amount of mass by the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, is that correct? You square that, multiply it times itself, and you multiply those two together, that's the amount of energy if you cause them to uh, explode, basically. <laughs> it's a formula for a nuclear bomb. Uh, energy, uh, or Einstein came up with this, and uh, it's been verified. Well, the point I'm making here, we're not getting off into physics. Uh, e has a particular meaning in this sequence. M has a particular meaning. C has a meaning. A superscript 2 has a particular meaning. We can't make any one of these, in fact, even the equal sign, we can't make them mean what we want them to mean. Or we can't say, well, E, um, maybe it means electricity, or maybe, you know, maybe it means something else. We need to go back. What did Einstein mean when he formulated this relationship? What did he intend? And we won't go through all of these, but um, if you want to go, this is physics. If you want to go to mathematics, uh, here's another relationship. Uh, in the context of mathematics, what does that mean? What, what is the meaning of A equals pi r squared? That's pretty common. Uh, third, fourth grade math. What, what grade of math? <laughs> Very good. Very good. A stands for area. Pi stands for 3.14. I can't remember. So, pi is a constant, and r is the radius. This, this defines the area of what? Of a circle. And again, you have a superscript 2, which has a particular meaning. In other words, it's squaring the uh, same idea there. Uh, you can't make those mean whatever you want them to mean. They, they mean something in their context, depending on uh, the intent. Now, here's why I throw this one in, because we have a 2 here. Is this 2 the same as this one? Same number. But in this relationship, it stands for something else. What's this? H2O. Water. Yeah. In other words, you take two hydrogen atoms and you combine them with one oxygen atom. Uh, so there's lots of information here. But these, these are symbols. These are, this is symbolic language. This stands for hydrogen. Two molecules of, or two, yeah, two molecules, two atoms of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen. All of that stands for that. So this is, in the context of chemistry, this has particular meaning. The point I'm making here, biblical symbols are no different than symbols that we use today. We go back, what did John intend by using this symbol? Not what do I hope or what do I want him to say? And from clues in either the biblical text itself or uh, in, in the case of the book of Revelation, sometimes you have to go to the Old Testament to find out where John gathered these images that he's using or these symbols. 
And you can go into other areas as well. We'll skip those. We're not doing hermeneutics here. So in interpreting symbols correctly, <clears throat> you first of all recognize they have definite meaning. In other words, the author intended to communicate an idea or a concept. When Einstein formulated that formula, he was conveying some information and relationships that you can't insert other meaning to. It won't work. So also with biblical symbols and metaphors as well. They have definite meaning. Secondly, let the Bible interpret them. The Bible often interprets them. In chapter 1, we have right off the bat, Jesus himself interprets two symbols for us. We don't have to go looking around for what they are. The stars are the seven angels. Now, what are the seven angels? <laughs> That's another question that we'll talk about when we get there. <laughs> A lot of views on who the angels are, but but at least it's limited uh, angels. Okay, the lampstands are the seven churches, uh, just like the superscript two stands for the squaring of the the number. So in this case, the lampstand represents the seven churches. So now, uh, what is he conveying by that image? Uh, it's probably limited to a few things. The idea that a lampstand uh, is the vehicle or the instrument that sends out the light or holds the light. And I think that's the main part of the image. The church is a light bearer, basically. So that's how we interpret symbols. And in this case, we have the Bible directly interpreted. Now, we have others in the book of Revelation that are interpreted by the author. And in fact, very few are left uninterpreted, at least from the context. Some of them, you have to go uh, outside of the book of Revelation to get the interpretation. And some of them are drawn from imagery from the book of Daniel, for example. John heavily uses prophets like Daniel, but some of, <clears throat> some of them Isaiah as well. Few biblical symbols are left uninterpreted. Uh, be careful. There's a possibility of multiple use of the same, same symbol, at least. So let the context dictate. The context is the final determiner of meaning. <clears throat> Always. That's a hermeneutical principle. Yes. Possibility of multiple uses of what? Me, uh, uh, the, the same symbol. Meaning the same thing? No, meaning something different. In other words, same symbol meaning something different. The example that I would use is a symbol of a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah is an image and a picture, maybe even a symbol of whom? Jesus Christ. But Peter speaks of the lion that uh, prowls around seeking whom he may devour. Same symbol, different meaning. 
different author, different context. So sometime, and this this is rare though, but just beware that uh, the the context dictates. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, that that'd be an, maybe not so much as two symbols, but an example where. In one case, it's literal, and in another case, it's used as a symbol. Yeah, that's a good, good example. The term is. Right. Yeah, and if you do a word study on that word, austere, I think is the Greek word. Uh, you will. Once you categorize the different usages of that word, uh, it is used in a physical sense, and sometimes it's used in a non-literal sense, and sometimes it's used in a non-literal sense in terms of a personage. Okay, yeah. So there's interpreting symbols. So we do have symbols. We need to recognize that, but we do also need to interpret them properly. Let the author guide you. There's lots of imagery drawn from nature. Some examples. Okay, there's the four horsemen, for example, in chapter 6. We have four living creatures. What are those? In chapters 4 and 5, we have the lamb. That one is easy to interpret. Now, that's a symbol, by the way. That's imagery. The most common reference to Jesus Christ is as the lamb in the book of Revelation. I think the term occurs in Scripture 29 times. Once in the Gospel of John. 28 times in the book of Revelation. So it's John's favorite description of Jesus Christ, which is interesting. Uh, uh, I think what John is deliberately doing in the book of Revelation, saying that Jesus Christ, that was the Passover lamb, he is this resurrected personage that I cannot even describe. Same person. So, in the book of Revelation, 28 times, I believe. Uh, so, the lamb, uh, that's an animal uh, out of nature. God is using uh, imagery of, of animals. Uh, there are locusts, there's scorpions, there's lions, there's leopards, there's bears, there's frogs, there's eagles, there's vultures, there's birds, there's fish, there's beasts, there's trees, there's grass, uh, even the earth. The sky, the sea, the sun, the moon, the stars, thunder, lightning, hail, rivers, lots of images. And those are just part of them drawn from nature. And, and sometimes they're literal as well in terms of things happening in terms of a literal usage of the, uh, on the effects of nature. Uh, need to comment on numbers. And there we go. In my exegesis of the book of Revelation, I cannot find a single number that is used in a non-literal way. 
And there's lots of numbers. In fact, numbers are kind of prominent in the book of Revelation. Lots of sevens. Seven churches. Seven bowl judgments. Seven trumpet judgments. Seven seal judgments. Seven this, seven that. Seven occurs very frequently. Uh, lots of numbers, but every number, I, I don't know of a single number. I have not found a single number in the book of Revelation that should not be at, be taken literally. Now, it talks about some things that are just, like I said, unbelievable. There's, there's an army described of 200 million. Uh, this was written at a time when the population of the earth was nothing even close to that, much less a single army from one geographical location. That's why a lot of commentators, even uh, even in our time, have a hard time with some of the numbers. So that number is very commonly spiritualized because it's just too huge. But I think we can take that number literally when we get to that passage. Again, we won't do that one in this part of the course. Uh, but numbers are a problem with the interpreters, particularly some of the larger ones and some of the and even not so large numbers. So start with the literal. Now, the debate and the question amongst us as conservatives is... Does John go beyond the literal? Uh, in other words, every number is literal. So don't interpret any of them non-literally. At least that's what I would suggest. The question is, because, for example, the, the use of seven is so prominent, uh, a lot of conservative scholars feel like uh, the number seven, for example, has special significance above and beyond the literal. Uh, they would not deny the literal, but seven seems to be a number that uh, is used particularly in the book of Revelation for uh, perfection or completion. So we have seven churches. We have a complete look at churches that display certain characteristics. When we have seven seal judgments, we have a complete set of judgments. A uh, number of perfection. In other words, this is God's perfect set of judgments. And uh, I don't have a problem with that. That it, It's so frequent that you, we may have warrant to be able to say that. Uh, but just keep in mind that there's also a debate amongst the, the use of numbers. Okay? Any question on that? So start literally in every case, including the numbers. Evidence for a literal thing, it, for example, in chapter seven. Uh, turn to chapter seven. Let me let me just show you why uh, this is reasoning for maintaining maintaining a literal approach to numbers. We have a a number here. Uh, read look at verse four. And I heard the number. Of those who were sealed, 144,000. And then you keep on reading, 12,000 from 12 tribes. So 12 times, 1,200 times 12 is 144,000. So that number is probably precise 
in the future, God is going to use a, an exact 144,000 men. They have other characteristics as well besides being men. The 666? Uh, say that again. Uh, well, I would still take it literally. In other words, uh, I would still see it. Uh, now, the meaning of it is a little bit obscure and, and it's not real clear. When we get to that, we'll discuss how it's been handled by commentators and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I think during that period of time, the believers will be alerted somehow. That number is going to have very uh, definite literal significance. We may not understand what it means totally. Okay. Uh, let's see, where was I headed? Oh, uh, 144,000, very specific. Uh, not 144,001, not 143,999. I think God is going to orchestrate these things, and He's telling us what He's going to do. Uh, skip to verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. In other words, and there are several examples where John says, just innumerable. So a lot of times the commentators will take even the 144,000 and say, oh, it's just an innumerable number. I mean, don't take it literally. And certainly the uh, 200 million is just conveying the idea of an innumerable number. Well, John does this. Uh, so when he gives us a literal number, I think he intends it to be literally because he could have said the same thing in those contexts as he does in verse 9 here. If he wants to convey an innumerable num number, that's what he does. He does it in verse 9. And he does it elsewhere as well. Which indicates that if he's giving us a specific number, then uh, we should take it literally. Okay? So that's metaphorical language. And we'll encounter it over and over. Uh, my attempt, as we work our way through the book is to begin with a literal interpretation until the author gives us the clues to depart from it. And then we will interpret it according to the clues that he gives us in steering us to the proper meaning. And we should do this with all Scripture. Uh, but the book of Revelation has been so abused because people think, well, there's a lot of non-literalness here, so it gives me license to kind of play with it and do whatever I want to with it. But the literal method or the uh, grammatical, historical, contextual method has boundaries and has checks and balances. And these are what they are. So there are symbols. There is metaphorical language. Another major characteristic we've already talked about. Uh, let's expand on this one. The Christology of the book of Revelation. And I mentioned that some consider it a fifth Gospel. <coughs> what? <laughs> uh, 
The book of Revelation gives us the most exalted picture of Jesus Christ. Yet, it uses that image most commonly that we referred to earlier. He's pictured as the Lamb. The four Gospels, obviously, picture Christ in His humanity, in His suffering, in His weakness. On the way to the cross, the book of Revelation pictures Christ as resurrected, as glorified, as indescribable. And the book even begins with uh, the little note concerning it being about Jesus Christ. We have lots of titles and names for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Just the combination, Jesus Christ or Jesus or Christ alone or Lord or Lord Jesus or even Messiah is used in the book. But we have all these other titles like faithful witness in verse 5. Firstborn of the dead, which we'll define when we get to the passages. Uh, Ruler of the kings of the earth. All three of those are in verse 5. The Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. uh, Alpha Omega, verse 8 of chapter 1. And also chapter 22. First and the last three times. uh, Chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 8. 22, 13. He's called the... Well, there's a debate. Uh, If... If he's the one in in chapter 1, verse 8, then he's called the Almighty. That may be a reference to the Father, however. Uh, The Son of Man, which was his favorite title of himself. That one is contained in the book of Revelation. Uh, The Amen, the faithful and true witness... Faithful witness in verse 5, but faithful and true witness in chapter 3, verse 14 and elsewhere. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, Root of David, holy and true. The male child in chapter 12. Here's the favorite of John. The Word of God, 19.13. The Lord of Lords and King of Kings, chapter 19, 6, verse 16, both of those in that passage. The beginning and the end, chapter 22. The root and offspring of David. Bright morning star. So he's described, and, and each of these titles, by the way, convey uh, meaning in terms of the, the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them, and in fact, most of them, Uh, Not only associate him with Messiah, but also associate him with deity. A lot of the titles. So we have lots of names and titles. We also have descriptions. He who loves us, more than a, not quite a title, more of a description in verse 5. Who released us from our sins by His blood. Descriptive of Him. 
who made us a kingdom of priests, is coming with clouds, every eye will see him. All of these descriptions. I've got a list of 37 of them. I won't read them all. (laughs) But just to give you a feel of the Christology of the book. Uh, So Jesus Christ is prominent. So if you want to learn about Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation is a major book of the Bible. Uh, Most of us would think that the Gospels are. Well, they are, but uh, the book of Revelation is the fifth Gospel, if you will. And we talked about the Lamb... And the interesting thing is uh, the diminutive word. There are, uh, are variations on the word for lamb in the Greek text. And usually it's the diminutive. In other words, a little lamb. Tender, a small lamb that's in view. If you want some of the, the verses... Uh, Chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 8. 6, 1. 6, 16. 7, 9, and 10. 7, 14. 7, 17, and on. We'll encounter it. 28 in all is what I counted. Lamb. Mm-hmm. We also have a lot of a lot of these titles, these phrases, a lot of the names are indications of, of deity. So the deity of Christ is stressed. The humanity of Christ is stressed only, usually, well, there's a few others, but primarily in the usage of the Lamb and his association with his death. But most of the others are in association with his deity. <clears throat> There's not, in fact, it's very similar to the Old Testament, and we'll talk about that as well. In the Old Testament, you don't have a sharp distinction between the Father and the Son. In fact, the idea of the Father is a New Testament concept. Uh, The Father is not an Old Testament concept. We get that in the New Testament. It's almost uh, like Old Testament descriptions of Christ in terms of the unity of the Godhead and not so clear distinctions between the two. Now, from the context, we can make a distinction because we have the benefit of other passages. Uh, but the, the, the lines are, are, are not so sharply drawn as we have, for example, in other New Testament passages. So, the, the, not only is the deity stressed, but the distinction between Christ and the Father is not as sharp. Kind of a oneness motif. Uh, For example, similar symbols are used both of Christ and of the Father in the book of Revelation. The Alpha and the Omega, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, is probably the Father there. We'll, We'll discuss that. But in chapter 1, verse 17, clearly it's Christ who is the Alpha and the Omega. So, both the Father and the Son are described as the Alpha and the Omega. 
In fact, that makes that's what makes some of the passages difficult to to make a distinction between who's in view in some of the passages because the titles are used for both in the book of Revelation. Uh, Who's on the throne? Uh, Some make the case that only the Father is always on the throne, but in some passages it's not so clear. Uh, The wrath of God is real common, but we have the wrath of the Lamb also. So, those passages kind of imply deity. So, that's the Christology. I mentioned also, uh, worship is a high priority in the book. Most of the heavenly scenes are a vision of worship, outbreaks of worship. There's a heavy emphasis and priority on worship. Partly because the doctrine of God is stressed. Theology proper is stressed. So, as people encounter what God is doing, or even the personage of God, the immediate response is one of worship. Chapters 4 and 5, you have a picture of the throne and all the creatures, which are uh, both angelic and probably human, uh, they're worshiping both chapters. They both end in worship. So God is on this throne at least 46 times in the book. God is pictured as creator. Jesus is pictured as judge. And he's worshipped as a result. Uh, Just the theology of worship. You could develop a theology of worship from the book. And I've already mentioned related to this theology is the doctrine of God because he is the proper object of our worship. And he's worshipped in terms of different uh, works that he does, primarily redemption, but also creation. We have a heavy emphasis on creation and the worship of God as creator, which kind of coordinates with that parallel with the book of Genesis. Uh, The major aspect of God that is stressed in the book of Revelation is his judgment. We also have a variety of worshipers. We have saints continuously worshiping. I counted 17 times of examples of saints worshiping. John himself, in uh, the introduction, we see him worshiping. He worships the Trinity in verse 6. Christ himself in verse 17, he bows down, falls down. 
and we have other examples in other places of John himself. We have mention of 24 elders. We'll talk about who they are. We'll try to identify them. Chapters 4 and 5, they're present. They worship the one on the throne. They worship the Lamb in chapter 5. We have a, a group of martyrs that die during the seven-year period, the tribulation period in chapter 6. They are under a, the altar, and that seems to be a heavenly vision there. So we have angels that worship. We have saints that worship. That great multitude that we looked at in chapter 7, verse 10, it's, that's a heavenly vision, and they are worshiping. So we have the saints. The four living creatures are angelic. They're worshipers. There's myriads of angels. Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 that, that bow down. Chapter 7, there's angels around the throne that worship. And elsewhere. We have some that are unidentified. We also have a condemnation for those who do not worship, who do not fall down and worship Him. In some of the letters, we have false worship pictured, and that is condemned. A reference to a synagogue of Satan, which would be a whole system of worship. Chapter 19, mankind in general worships idols. The whole earth worships the beast, the first beast. So this is false worship. So there's a failure to worship the true God. We have even hymns in the book, what appear to be hymns that may have been sung, like in chapter 4 and 5. Those would be considered perhaps hymns that could be put to music. And that's a major theme is the worship. We have a high Christology. We have worship as a priority. Judgment is a major theme. A major element, major aspect of the book of Revelation is judgment. Even the seven churches... They don't experience God's wrath. They don't experience God's judgment. But the seven churches, the essence of what's going on there and the message is God is evaluating or assessing each of the seven churches or Jesus Christ is assessing them. And we have a, an assessment. In fact, we'll talk a lot about that when we get to chapters two and three. Uh, so it's. 
I view them something like a, a military inspection where you have a, a commander of a group or maybe even the ultimate commander who stands before the troops and they review, they're standing in review and they are under inspection. And, and we have the image of an angel that seems to be one that is either or maybe both a witness and perhaps the one that... Uh, writes down the inspection report. And he writes down uh, the things that need to be corrected. Uh, that's a major theme of each of the letters. And there's consequences as well for failure. So it's almost like a military inspection. So we, that's a form of judgment, uh, evaluation, or an assessment. So even these early chapters, chapters 1 and 2... Uh, I could have included there chapter 1, the image of Jesus Christ or the vision. That first vision is one, uh, I think there's two elements to it, but one of the main element is one of a judge. Uh, that the, the elements in that vision of Jesus Christ is one of a judge. I think he's a king and judge, but that's the image there. Uh, we have the major portion of the book. Chapters 4 through 17 that deals with all of mankind and even the planet, the earth, is under judgment. It's as if God is, is cleansing the earth. Uh, I mentioned earlier that... Uh, God is dealing with evil and He is bringing it to, a, to an end and He's going to banish it ultimately. So this is the process of, of cleansing, of removing that from uh, that that is destroying. And then we have a series. So, so mankind is a focus of judgment from chapter 4 through chapter 19. Uh, then we have series of judgments that are the bulk of this seven-year period. You can find the major judgments under seals or trumpets or bowls. Uh, seal judgments, we have all of chapter 6, so an entire chapter. Uh, two chapters of trumpet judgments. And actually the seventh seal is in chapter 8 as well. And then we have a chapter on bowl judgments. And we have a whole chapter kind of preparatory, chapter 15, to these bowl judgments. So that's the essence of what God is doing. He is essentially dealing with evil. Now, the world in which we live in says, why, you know, it answers a lot of questions concerning why we suffer and why there's evil. Why does God permit it? Well, if God were to intervene and end evil, as a lot of the unbelievers would like for God to do, uh, that means he would have to bring judgment. <laughs> That's how he ends evil. Uh, judgment is the separating of that that God loves from that that he wants to dis remove or destroy. And the unbeliever doesn't realize that when that happens... That separating is a painful process. And that's what judgment is. So we have these series of, of judgments. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. 
uh, where God is in the process, and apparently it, uh, the, the revelation we have in the book is that this is a long process that God does, that He intensifies and concentrates in this seven-year period of time and beyond. There's some that, are, that go beyond the seven-year. We have Babylon specifically judged. Babylon specifically. Now you might think, well, why Babylon? Uh, when we get to chapter 17 and 18, uh, this is one of the symbols that you have clues in the, the text itself, but it goes all the way back to where's the beginning of Babylon? Genesis 11, exactly. It goes all the way back to Babel. Uh, there's a concept that is developed in Babel that runs through the rest of world history that God ultimately deals with. So you have to think, in understanding, I've already mentioned, in understanding the book of Revelation, you have to think Jewish. You have to think eschato Jewish eschatology. So you have to think, what was Babylon to the nation of Israel? And it would start in Babel, and it would include the ancient Babylonian Empire that ultimately was the, uh, the peoples that destroyed the nation of Israel. So, chapter 17 and 18 and references to Babylon. Babylon is fallen, it mentions in chapter 14. Uh, all of those references gather all that imagery from the Old Testament that Jews would have been very much conscious of. Jews today, it would be like using the word Hitler today in a Jewish context. Uh, what a Jew would think about if they thought of Hitler, they'd think of concentration camps. Uh, that's what the Old Testament Jews would have thought of when you use the word Babylon. So that imagery is what chapter 17 and 18 are talking about. And the other references like in chapter 14. Babylon. Babylon is going to finally be dealt with. So it's more than just the nation of Babylon. And it's more than just a resurgence of a country that is probably going to rise and be present during that seven year period. But I think it's a, a concept. In fact, you'd call it Babylonianism that we will deal with. It's a worldview. We live in Babylon, by the way. In, in other words, our, the worldview that is prevalent amongst us is Babylonian. And God's going to deal with that concept. And He's going to deal with that worldview. So that's what we're talking about here. So is it literal Babylon? It's literal. I think, there's a liter I think there will be a, a literal city that... Uh, kind of, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, kind of encapsulates the concept. Uh, there'll be a city there, um, but it goes beyond the city. Uh, it, you know, it, it deals with a worldview. It w deals with a concept. And, and basically, the worldview, I think, is uh, man just basically doing things on his own, autonomous, autonomous man uh, functioning and raising his fist at God and saying, I can do things my own way. I'm going to build a kingdom. That's, that was Babylon. Babylon is 
will build a kingdom apart from God and uh, will be just fine. We'll use our technology, we'll use our resources, we'll use our mentality, and we can do things without God. Uh, basically, uh, Babylon is nothing more than the world system, I think. So there will be uh, the epitome of the world system. There'll be a one world government that'll come to judgment. The world system, that's what the Jews thought of in terms of Babylon. Babylon the Great. Uh, so, the judgment. We have the judgment of Babylon the Great. We'll talk a lot more when we get to chapter 17. Antichrist and the false prophet are specifically cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 19. God is dealing with all of the enemies, all of the anti-God movements, forces, personages, concepts, worldviews, all the damage that sin has done. Satan himself. First of all, he is bound for a thousand years. And I should include between Antichrist and the false prophet. What else should we include in there? What other enemies are there of God? God's going to deal with that as well. Mm, yeah, uh, I think we would include that with Satan, but I'm, I'm thinking of something else. What are the three enemies of the Christian? which are also the enemies of God. Yep. And which one's not on the list there that should be? The flesh. I see the millennial kingdom as partly God dealing with the flesh. It's going to be an ideal environment. Can't blame the environment can't blame your parents because all your parents will be Christians that walk into the Millennial Kingdom. <laughs> There'll be babies in the Millennial Kingdom. They'll grow up, raise their fists against God. Satan didn't tempt them. Can't blame Satan. Can't blame their environment. Can't blame the world. Jesus Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. And at the end, there's still a resistance. There's still a rebellion. There's still... The battle. Uh, I think deal, God's going to deal with the flesh. And I, I think I see that as one of the major purposes of the millennial kingdom is to just reveal just the sinfulness of the flesh. Can't blame anything else. Can blame your flesh? You're blaming yourself. But generally, people want to blame something else <laughs> outside of their flesh. <laughs> okay? So, judgment is a major theme. And then Satan, ultimately. And then we have the great white throne judgment. So, we're talking about from chapters 4 through the end of chapter 20, these themes of judgment. This is a major theme of the book of Revelation. We can't understand the book without understanding 
the concept of judgment. And we'll, we'll talk some of the, the, this concept when we get to chapter 6. Uh, so the book kind of gives us a lot of insight into that. So judgment, and then uh, finally on the list, another major theme, and we've been talking a little bit about it, is the Old Testament emphasis. And again, let me just keep reminding you, when you approach the book of Revelation, think Old Testament, think Jewish. Most of the allusions, most of the imagery, um, there are very few quotes if any, in fact, I don't know if there's any quotes from the Old Testament, but there's literally hundreds of allusions and words and uh, things that come right out of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Allusions. I have some numbers here. Now, these vary. Uh, scholars vary. I've got numbers from 290 um, allusions all the way to, I think, 404, depending on the commentators. So there are some that are not that clear, but we're talking about hundreds of allusions, even at the low, low number. And, And yet not any quotes, not any direct quotations. So lots of references to the Old Testament by way of by way of illusion. Um, let's see. I guess that's all I want to say on that. The titles of deity are primarily Old Testament titles, and those related to uh, the Father are Old Testament titles, and those related to Jesus Christ are Old Testament titles. The Father, He's Creator. Phrases that speak of His eternality. Uh, All of the attributes or perfections of God come out of the Old Testament, and then the New Testament either reiterates them or uh, uh, continues to uh, refer to them. So, all of the terms and attributes, the Almighty, that's an Old Testament concept uh, referring to the omnipotence of God. Uh, The Alpha and the Omega, that's out of the Old Testament. And that refers both to Christ and the Father in the book of Revelation. Root of David, that's a term of, that's a messianic term that would refer to uh, deity of Christ. And there's others as well. Uh, references to geography refers to Euphrates, very common in the Old Testament. Sodom is referred to. Armageddon, that's right out of the Old Testament. Babylon, we've just touched on that. Egypt. And sometimes those are words that are used metaphorically or non-literally. 
but they're out of the Old Testament. There's characters, Old Testament characters as well. Balaam, out of Numbers. Jezebel, uh, the wife of Ahab. And we have a lot of Old Testament concepts. The Tree of Life, the Book of Life, Lightning, Thunder, and Voices. Those are out of Old Testament uh, prophetic passages. The phrase, the wine of wrath or the cup of wrath, that comes out of Isaiah. We mentioned Babylon the Great, that concept, that's Old Testament concept. The one seated on the throne is an Old Testament concept. Well, that's the essence of the introduction. In the time that we have remaining, let me just give you a quick thumbnail sketch of the whole book. And then we'll probably even leave a little early tonight. Uh, Turn to chapter 1, verse 19. And by the way, I'm going to give you a somewhat complete exegetical outline of the whole book. The next uh, handout will be chapter 1. It won't go into great detail, but it will give you a, a pretty good framework for the whole book. We have a little bit of a hint as to the structure of the book in chapter 1, verse 19, where Jesus instructs John. He says, write, therefore, the things which you have seen. Notice three things here. The things you have seen, the things which are. And the things which shall take place after these things. Notice the three things. Past, present, future. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen. Past tense. What did John just see? vision of Jesus Christ. Uh, So he's recorded that. And John is just recording these things. The things which are, what do you think that refers to? So the things you have seen is probably chapter 1. The things which are, chapters 2 and 3, which deal with the church age or the seven churches. Very good. And the things which will take place after these things. Chapter four through verse or chapter four through chapter 22. And if you compare chapter four after these things, verse one, the exact phrase that we have in 119. Chapter four seems to. By Jesus' own words there, give us a picture of after these things. In other words, this is the prophetic section. Uh, That's why uh, we as conservatives would look at chapter 4 
to the end of the book, basically prophetic, uh, things that have not been fulfilled, certainly not in 70 A.D., and no, nothing has been fulfilled in, uh, in the church age. Everything is future. In fact, I think you need to think in terms of everything in terms of fulfillment with the nation of Israel. The rapture is not mentioned. So, uh, in that threefold breakdown, we have uh, the vision is a major element of the book of Revelation. It kind of sets the framework and the foundation for virtually everything else in the book. Chapters 2 and 3 give us a picture of seven churches, and we'll talk more specifically of how to interpret them and what do they represent. Are they a picture of prophecy also? I don't think so. I think the prophetic section starts in chapter 4. Those are the things that are, in other words, the things that pertain to the church. I view them very much like uh, you would Ephesians in the first Ephesians, if you want to be... (laughs) or Colossians, or Romans, or any of the uh, epistolary letters. So, I would see, beginning in chapter 4, and as you can tell, the bulk of the book is prophetic. Now, the question is, what's that relationship uh, to the Old Testament? I see essentially chapter 4 through 19 as a particular week that is spelled out in Daniel chapter 9. Now, I'm not going to take the time to give you the details. But chapter 9 of Daniel uh, speaks of one year of Israel's history that has never been fulfilled in time. 69 of those weeks of years have been fulfilled to the very day on Palm Sunday. And then there seems to be implied in Daniel 9 a gap of time of it doesn't specify it. I think the disciples thought it it might happen in their lifetime uh, that the consummation of all things were going to happen. But I think uh, obviously the church age has gone on for 2,000 years, so we have a gap in there. But that one week of Israel's history has never been fulfilled. And we'll talk some more. I'll I'll give you more of a background on that. But I think that one week is basically chapters 4 through 19. And then chapter 19 is the coming of what the Jews anticipated after that seven-year period. Uh, There's actually something else that they anticipated would happen during that seven-year period that is also in the book of focus and emphasis. In fact, one of the main purposes. There's two main purposes for that seven-year period. One is to bring judgment, and Jews knew that. Uh, We'll look at some Old Testament passages that give us that background. Uh, The second thing is what? what? What's the second major thing that the Jews anticipated during a period of testing, a period of... uh, Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. Salvation, exactly. There's salvation or restoration. And we have that. Uh, In fact, we'll get to that. I think that's the focus of chapter 7. Yes, twofold judgment. We'll, We'll talk a lot about that. Yeah. Judgment of the world, basically. And uh, 
And those judgments are designed to bring Israel to their knees to receive their Messiah, to prepare them spiritually for their Messiah. Then we have the coming of the Messiah. That's chapter 19. And what's a fourth element that Jews anticipated throughout their, well, maybe not throughout their history, but particularly later history? This is, this is the essence of Jewish eschatology. A period of severe tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time that God would regather them and save them, the coming of their Messiah, and the fourth element, the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. And this is what Jesus says. Um, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He offered that kingdom. And that kingdom, the Jews had a concept of. And we want to reacquaint ourselves with that Jewish concept of the kingdom. That's what they expected. The book of Revelation tells us what... In fact, the book of Revelation doesn't tell us much about the kingdom. It just tells us a few things. Uh, Basically, John assumes we know the Old Testament. John assumes we know the Old Testament concept of the kingdom. Uh, This is where the church has gotten off. Uh, They've kind of omitted this Jewish concept of the kingdom, and we come up with this amillennial thing and replacement theology and all this other stuff. If you just keep what eschatology is all about, I think it keeps you from going off on these little trails that don't lead anywhere. So, chapter 20 is the fulfillment of that kingdom. And then chapter 21 and 22 is the eternal state. What we commonly refer to as heaven or eternity. It's a thumbnail sketch. I'll give you a somewhat complete outline of the whole book as we work our way through it. Any questions before we close up today? Clear? Hmm, his mud <laughs> makes sense. See why this is the most one of the most important books of the whole Bible. <laughs> Agree now. <clears throat> I think it's an exciting book, uh, one that uh, I hope you enjoy, and I hope the, the Lord blesses us through it. He promised a blessing. I plan on uh, reading it. <laughs> I plan on you all hearing it. It's up to you to obey it, and you'll be blessed. (laughs) Let's close. Father, we do praise you, and we uh, look to you in anticipation of what you want to accomplish as we look at your inspired word. And Lord, we uh, anticipate that you will make yourself clear and plain, and that we will not... Uh, get off on tangents that are beyond what you intended in terms of meaning and just help us to stay focused on the proper hermeneutic and the proper approach and stay close to you as well. And may we find practical application. May we be better worshipers as a result of our study. May we be more faithful as a result of our study. May we be better prepared for what you have for us in life and in the future and beyond this life as a result of what we study. And may we, most of all, not 
lose our first love, but that we would be deepened in our appreciation and, and worship and praise and adoration of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.